Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is investigative journalist Matt Wynn. Matt Wynn is a data reporter on the investigative team at USA Today. His work there has looked at doctors who continue to practice despite being banned in other states, the spread of copycat legislation from state house to state house, and the shortcomings in care for pregnant women. Before this, he worked for a medical news site, the Omaha World Herald, and in Phoenix and Springfield, Missouri. He went to school at the University of Missouri, but Omaha is his home. Matt has three kids and a lovely wife, Sarah. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we were just chatting and I was wondering, is there a good story that you have worked on that would perhaps uh, give us an entry into understanding what is the work that you do? Sure. Our last one was very, uh, you know, investigative is the wrong word for this one. But what, one thing that we did was we looked at uh, the testimony in the House hearing about impeachment. And we looked at all the words that were said, all the, you know, thousands upon thousands, the 11 hours of uh, testimony at that hearing. And we split them into, okay, here's what Republicans were saying and here's what Democrats were saying. And then we just counted up the phrases that they said. And so what we found, for instance, was uh, Democrats, I believe, talked about um, the United States. Uh, that was one of their big ideas. They said it, which is not shocking, right? They said it 110 times. Republicans' top concept was the American people. They did not say the United States as often. And that, that alone uh, kind of hints at the strategy that they had going into that. Another interesting finding we had there is uh, Democrats talking about rule of law, constitutional, you know, oath of constitution, these sorts of things, whereas Republicans talked about quid pro quo. Uh, and, you know, we talked to some strategists after the fact about, okay, well, how, how come this phrase was said 97 times and this phrase was said 30 times, and by the way, never the twain shall meet. Republicans didn't say anything that Democrats said. Democrats didn't say anything that Republicans said. The messaging was very um, singular to each party. Uh, and, and it kind of revealed something about how each party went into that debate and what they meant to accomplish while they were there. So that's one example. Uh, on the more investigative side, I mentioned the copycat legislation. With that one, what we did is we wrote an algorithm, basically, that slurped up every bill introduced in state houses over the course of the past decade. Um, and it compared the wording in them, the language in them, and we found giant chunks of, of these bills that are just, I mean, maybe not literally copied and pasted, but damn close to going from one to the other to the other to the other. And, and we kind of looked at the networks and how this pans out, how these ideas go from place to place and why they are so, so similar. Why they change so little, why the same stuff is happening in Florida and Missouri and the, the nature of what they're talking about. Um, and then on the other side, things are, you know, the, the maternal harm story that we did last year, which looked at, um, it was, to my understanding, the first attempt to look at the hospital level of where hospitals are failing to take care of pregnant women. Uh, and we actually went to, I think it was 13 states. Uh, we had a, a colleague of mine got on a plane and went down to Texas to download some data from Austin that they refused to give to us. You know, they refused to send to us through a records request. Uh, he got the data, he analyzed it, and we were able to put together a look at here are, you know, hospitals' rates of failing to protect these women. They're putting these women in harm's way. And we could actually publish that stuff, which is another thing that's near and dear to my heart. We could take that and say, look up the hospital where you're going 
and see if they're going to take care of you or not. How often they perform these these sorts of tests that they should be doing. Uh, how often they do this sort of aftercare that they're supposed to be doing. And I think it's led to people being safer and certainly people knowing more about what they're what they're doing themselves. You know, it's interesting hearing you share those stories because it's becoming clearer in some ways what your bioreference, which is being a data reporter. Yeah. And of course, if you say, uh, I'm going to buy a newspaper so I can uh, read about some statistics, that, that isn't exciting, <laughs> right? So in some ways, it feels as if part of your work is about accessing data and interpreting it in a way that a story can be told to to the public at large. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I am not, I'm, I, I took the same algebra class three times in high school because I flunked it every time. Um, I, I did not come from this strong math. I, I wanted to tell stories and find things that people didn't know about. And data, you know, comp- data is just one word for it, right? It's, it's computer uh, writing code, algorithms, these sorts of things. Especially nowadays when so much of our lives is online, being able to say, Here's how the uh, the Covington, Kentucky story spread online. Here's here are the main people who spread it. Here's how it spread. That was the Kentucky kid. Remember that with the uh, Native American gentleman. There was this photo of a kid from uh, Covington, Kentucky, and a Native American gentleman whose name escapes me right now. And there's this this photo that just captured the national imagination of these two in a you know head to head. It looked like, depending on your point of view, it was either a Native American man picking on a kid with a uh, Make America Great hat, or vice versa, a Make America Great hat picking on a Native American man who was trying to leave chant. Uh, it was kind of a, roar, a political Rorschach test. Depending on what you brought to this photo, you would see entirely different things. Um, and we were able to do a story looking at, okay, here's how this story spread. Here's who first put it out there, and here's when it gained the most followers. Here's when it got picked up by the left, and here's when the right-wing media uh, operation swung into full force and blew it up on a different scale, um, which was fascinating. That also uh, was my first time having all of my records, my emails, everything put on legal hold because we were sued. <laughs> um, but, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. We just said who published the story, when, and how they put it out over social media. Another part of what you were describing about some of those illustrations of the stories you've written is actually how hard that sounds. So most of us just encounter the news in some really rapid turning a print page version or scrolling through a screen of some sort. And we don't necessarily think too hard about how much of a slog it was to get to that (laughs) story. And you mentioned the colleague that flew down to Texas to get the data that wasn't being provided through a freedom of information request. Talk about maybe you know, some of the, the hard work that goes into unearthing the data and then making sense of it and how long and how hard this is. God. Uh, in, in some cases, it's quick. One local example that I can talk about was several years ago now, we, we found hundreds of prisoners where the state had screwed up the uh, sentencing calculation for these guys and they had been improperly releasing criminals before their sentence was up. And they were doing it you know the real be- uh, the real harm was they were doing it before these guys could go on uh, into parole. They were not giving any sort of reentry as as a kind of side effect of screwing up the sentences and having them released too soon. They were not getting any uh, of the institutional guidance that we give them to get them back into society. And that was a two week thing. That was us 
finding out that was our court supporter going to court, seeing a guy who shouldn't be there, uh, telling me about it. I dove into the records and I could say, okay, well, here's how they screwed up his sentence. And now let's go online and find all the other cases of all the, I don't even remember the number, thousands of people who have been through the Nebraska correction system that have a similar screw up. That was, you know, a week of guess and check on how to make that website work that way. And then a week of saying, is this right? Oh my God, this can't be right. Is this right? And then, you know, another couple of days of reporting around it and doing those stories. That was relatively quick. Conversely, the story about doctors, that was a case where we worked with a private company and weeks and weeks of meetings just to convince them to share this proprietary data they had with us. Uh, and then months and months of verifying it because we found flaws in their data. You know, just like any data set, sometimes there are problems. Uh, but with government, you can kind of trust it and say, look, it's those guys. They're the government. We're paying them to do it. It's interesting if they screw up with a company. They're just doing the best they can, and it's a little less fair to hold their feet to the fire. So it was months and months of verifying. Is this Jim Smith who has some terrible disciplinary record in New Hampshire the same as the Jim Smith who is practicing in Utah? Do they have the same birth date? Do they have the same specialty? All those sorts of things that kind of let you verify one way or the other that they are, in fact, the same person. Um, yeah, it can be a slog. It can really be a slog. Uh, it's hard to think too much about historical things, but even right now we're working on something that has me learning up on uh, county property records in states that I have never even visited to see how they work, what they're tracking. By the way, when they say property tax, what does that actually mean in this case? Are they removing the fact that it belongs to a nonprofit because nonprofits are, you know, learning the arcana of how different societies work, different locals, local jurisdictions work, and taxing uh, powers and authority, and then just how their dang website, how to open it up and how to get to what you're after to get it. this, what's going to ultimately be three or four paragraphs in story sometime in the next couple weeks. How do these stories come to you? I, I have the benefit of working with a team of fantastic reporters, some of the best in the entire country. There's about you know, 20, 25 of us on the team. Uh, we have five or six on my data team right now, and the rest of those are just traditional kind of muckraking journalists who are out causing trouble and, and catching the bad guys, that sort of thing. Uh, they will often come to me with ideas, and you know they're all fantastic people. They will come to me with a hair-brained, half-brained, half-cocked idea and say, is this possible? Or, hey, Matt, I've got a half-cocked, hair-brained idea. Tell me what we can do from this. And sometimes they turn into something and sometimes they don't. Um, you know, these are people who are out there working contacts. They, they know, you know, if you can think of high-profile cases that are in the news right now, 
there are people who talk to the lawyers involved with those or the pages involved with those, and they know kind of what's coming and what we can be doing to preview what, whatever's uh, the next shoe to drop there. Um, traditional sourcing, one of, one of the stories that I haven't personally been involved in but really impressed me was about a security company that is worldwide. Their whole shtick is, yeah, we're a private security company and we're full of police officers and you know uh, military, these sorts of things. What they don't tell you is, it's all police officers and military who were fired for some reason. And that's why they take our crappy low-paying job. <laughs> so we're cheap and we have these high-profile guys. The side effect is we're cheap and they're the worst of the high-profile guys. Uh, and he was able to... I still don't know how exactly he got on that story. But that turned into a year-long uh, deep dive into the problems this company was having, missing guns. He had to fly to Afghanistan to pick up some pieces of the puzzle. I mean, just... You know, he's a world-class reporter, and I get to hear his ideas when they're at the neonatal stage and kind of hang my hat, if it makes sense. Is there a story that right now that, that is uh, of interest? We're doing some stuff looking into the Boy Scouts of America right now. They're, you know, at this point in their lives when they're weighing bankruptcy. And the question is, what happens to the Boy Scouts of America, this 100-plus-year-old institution, when they, when they lose it all? What is it all in this situation, in this scenario? Boy Scouts of America is set up where they've got a national group, but then they also have a whole bunch of local groups. And what you, what I learned that it was not clear to me at the onset is that those local groups hold almost all the assets. So do those get looped into this if they go belly up? Um, I, I don't have the questions, but we're having to learn all that stuff very quickly, how their property holdings work, um, legally what's at risk and what's at stake here. That's one that is fascinating to me, and it's been that's what I spent all day doing before I came here to hang out with you lovely people. <laughs> In many ways, it's been upsetting to witness the diminution of trust in institutions. You'd have to be under a rock not to see the uh, implications of the phrase fake news being mm -hmm. thrown around as much as it has, and journalists being called enemies of the people. And now that's rippled out across the rest of the world. And we see other leaders in despotic countries using that kind of accusation to hold back or to diminish this sense of trust in journalists and, and the media. I wonder if you have a personal take on being a representative of this class that is being demonized at the minute. It is hard. It is difficult. Um, I guess I haven't thought about the the part you dropped there at the end, being a representative of this class. That's not something that I think about too often. Uh, but so this morning I had an interaction with a gentleman who was talking about how the Illuminati was involved in Kobe Bryant's death. And he knew this because he saw it on YouTube this morning. And I can't even tell you the kind of, it, I, first the wheels in my head spun for a while and then they spun off and then this part of my head exploded and then I just, I, I, I did not have a reaction. I couldn't even continue the conversation in any real way because, you know, the, that, as much as that's just horrifying up from a 10,000 foot, I am a member of society level, as a person who actually tries to deal with facts and, and news and information, this sort of stuff, I, I can't, I mean, it's been several hours now. I still can't fathom exactly what he said to me. Um, what that means as far as, what information is, how it gets out there, and who's reading it, and why they're reading it. In that case, that's far more, I mean, 
clearly having the Illuminati kill Kobe Bryant is far more interesting than just the man was in a horrific accident. Um, how do you wrestle with that? How do you deal with that? And the fact that it's being weaponized by so many people, um, it's a lot to think about. So how I deal with being a representative of the class of people that do the more boring reporting, uh, <laughs> you know, I do, I am very careful, I think, about weighing in on anything political. That's something that I take to heart and I've always taken heart. And that's, I think, become a little, uh, gone a little by the wayside over the past couple of years, especially as things have since 2016, to be honest. Um, but I try to be careful about it. And I think that that's for good reason. Uh, I do think we're at kind of a point you were asking earlier about being, you know, being the byline or the person behind the byline, having a personality there. And I do think that those areas are becoming a little more gray than they were when I was in journalism school. And for good reason, I still think we're working through that. And I am willing to learn. I, I'm not as, you know, I'm not so bold to believe that everything I know and choose to be right is correct. Uh, and my take on that might change over time. But I do think it's important to let everyone know that you will listen to their... I mean, I'll tell you what. I went and looked up the Illuminati theory conspiracy. Who am I to judge? Maybe there's something there. I do think it's reasonable to at least let people know that you you will hear their ideas and you will treat them fairly and you will give them the benefit of the doubt um, no matter what they're talking about. Do you find some solace that comes from being a data reporter? And we talked about that not being a dry scientific endeavor, but it's a means to find the human story that lies within these bits of information that you sift through to weave together what, what is this data trying to tell us as a narrative. But the data itself is inherently um, neutral. But I just wonder if, um, for example, instead of being a columnist, an opinion mm -hmm. writer, or a cultural critic of some sort, or a prognosticator about the future of, of, you know, the economy or something like this. That instead you can say, no, no, I'm just telling you what the data is telling me. And I don't know if that gives you some comfort. You know, it does. But on the other hand, the data is only telling me what I have asked it, if that gives you any other spin. So I am constantly under the fear that I have screwed up that question in some way or brought some of my own biases into how I'm phrasing that question. Um, alternatively, there was a story that we did a couple years ago looking at, a, there, there's a federal database. Every time, If you take Tylenol and you die right now, I will call this number because I'm a member of society and I will say, we've lost Stuart to Tylenol. And, and it will go into a database and there's an entry put in there. And we did a story a couple of years ago looking at the just dramatic increase in these, they're called adverse effects from drugs that we've seen over the past five, 10 years. I mean, just astronomical, fourfold, tenfold what they were, you know, back in the mid 2000s or even the 90s, if I recall correctly. Okay. So on the, on the one hand, the data is the data and that's correct and true. And it was worth doing a story. On the other hand, well, why would that be? It's because it's significantly easier than it was 10, 20 years ago to file a report online. It used to be a PDF. At some point, they moved it to a form. You know, that by virtue of how they collect the information, the data itself has changed. It's the exact same stuff. There is still a person taking a drug and they had some terrible outcome. But for myriad reasons that are not going to be entirely apparent until you dig in, it's going to be misleading. Yeah, we can say there's a fourfold, tenfold increase in certain, you know, side effects to certain drugs. And that's true. 
On the other hand, it's important to know why. Probably at least in part because it's significantly easier now to tell us what happened. So that sort of thing keeps me up at night. On every story that I do, I had an editor who told me, you know, within the week before a story would run, why aren't you sleeping? That's what he would ask me. That's how he would know what he needs to deal with in his final week to get things buttoned down and ready for publication. And that was a really good way to put it because that's exactly what happens to us. I'm, I'm always terrified that I have missed something like that, like the fact that things have just become easier to report or again, that I've phrased my question incorrectly and got an answer that I thought made sense. And so I'm bringing all my biases into it and saying, yes, that's good. Let's go with it. Um, yeah. So there, <laughs> to your question, there is a little bit of comfort to the idea that I'm just dealing with data and just trying to tell us what data means. But there's all these other follow-up questions that don't exist with regular reporting. If I ask a gentleman for his opinion on something and he tells me, I know that I got it right. I can write down what he told me and I know that that's a fact. He told me that. All this stuff uh, is a little more, you just have to be a lot more honest with yourself and question your assumptions and your biases at every possible point, which can drive you a little crazy. One thing I've noticed, entirely tangential, is since I've gotten into this work, uh, I have become so much less confident because of constantly questioning, well, how did I get there? Was I really thinking straight? When was that? What else did I do? How much time did I actually spend on that? Did I think through everything? That process has just made me uh, a far more scared person than I once was. So, so let me make a provocative statement then. I love provocative statements. Which is possibly complimentary to you, but offensive to everybody listening to the show. <laughs> <laughs> are we, or maybe we have always been, but are we getting more stupid uh, and a sheep-like as a society, as a group of uh, people that uh, self-govern, as a polity, because we don't ask ourselves tough questions? about the world, about how we see the world. Because what you were describing is how, as you've journeyed through your career, you have become more and more self-critical, self-aware, mm -hmm. thoughtful about how you're responding to information, and you're trying to do your best. And, and you're even acknowledging, you know you've made some mistakes along the way with this, but you're always trying to see them for what they are, be honest with yourself. And it seems to me that maybe... Um, you might look at the world around you and think, it's a shame that society at large is not doing this. In fact, it seems as if it's going in the other direction. Well, I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy, that, that they do the same process. I mean, it's a horrible thing to live with, but I, I do get the question. Um, going back to my friend with the Illuminati and Kobe, that person was exploring information in a way that wasn't possible 50 years ago. There would be no way to look up the Illuminati's uh, role in, in that at the time. So maybe on the one hand, we are being a little more self-critical and, and looking into things more. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's more of a conversation now than there has been historically about 
where information is coming from and what people's motives are and why is that out there. And, you know, when I talk about messaging, that's something that we all get. We all understand spin. We understand that politically. We understand that, you know, personally and for businesses and those sorts of things. And so in that way, I think we're more mature when it comes to these sorts of problems. At the same time, I think a lot of people are just writing off anything hard, anything that has to do with, you know, certainly politics. Politics, no one wants to talk about politics ever. Any sort of institution of any kind, we tend to write those off. You know, uh, politicians are bad, or the police are bad, or, you know, whatever position we want to take. And it kind of blocks us in, and, and we kind of come with our own predetermined boxes on how things are going to end up, our own predetermined answers. Is there any advice that you give people, any sort of how-to tips when they throw their arms in the air and, and they say to you, Matt, like, how do I... How do I make sense of the information that's out there? What should I do? I have never given a tip in my entire life. <laughs> um, man, how do I make sense of the information that's out there? Journalistically, when I go into things, and I use this in my own life too, I guess, is I'm always looking for, I'm looking to at least know that the source is what the source is. So again, government data is one thing. It comes from the government. I know what they are. I know they're just a whole bunch of bureaucrats pushing pencils and filling out forms and typing into databases. And, and by the way, they're always getting laid off. So that's why these things might change in that way. I can understand what that is. And I can say, you know, if I have to, if I want to argue my taxes, for instance, I can go to their records and I can say, yes, this is your records and it shows X, Y, Z. Um, that's great. The minute that I'm relying on you know, I get these emails all the time from some shady marketing firm that says, we've just did a study, quote unquote, on, you know, affordability for the middle class raising kids in America and Papillion is number one. Wait a minute. What? Who are you? Who's paying you? Why would you ever do this study in the first place? Are you a, a, a family factory? Are you making families? Why are you researching such a thing? Questioning people's motives all the time. Why are they doing that? And then how did they get there? I think trying to understand, and how much thought did you put into it? So many of these kind of marketing sort of studies that I see are just poorly thought out. They're put there so they can put out a press release and someone will say, oh, cool, my neighborhood is number one in the country. My city is number one in the country. I'm on a top 20 list. Uh, and lo and behold, people click on that stuff and they read it and they share it on Facebook and the Twitter machine and all that sort of thing. It works. Um, and we just have to kind of step back and ask ourselves why. Why are they doing that and why are we helping them? What are they getting out of it? You want to get someone who has nothing in it, which is why I love government. That guy who's getting paid $40,000 a year to type stuff into a database, you know what he's getting out of it? $40,000 a year. He would quit tomorrow if he had the opportunity. <laughs>
that's a great segue, not from you would quit tomorrow if, if you could, but, <laughs> but, but to you. Uh, you're asking why, why do people do it? What's in it for them? How much thought have they put into this? How, how do they come to this? And I, I want to unearth a little bit of your motivations for doing the work that you do. Um, maybe the best way to start is just to ask you to share a little bit about your upbringing and then we can sort of think sure. about how, how do you get into journalism? My parents run a business in the old market, the Souk. My sister helps run the place now. Um, there's a cool picture of my grandma who started the place on the wall with little tiny me and my little tiny sister. So you can look at that and then you'll know that's what I look like still to this day. Um, so I got to grow up with that kind of entrepreneurial thing uh, in the house all the time. And I had just a fantastic childhood. My parents, you know, it's, a, it's an import store and so... Throughout my life, a couple times, we got to go on trips to go buy things for the imported go to Turkey when I was a kid, uh, twice going to, you know, all over Europe and, and these sorts of things. And then I just, I had a fantastic childhood. I can't, um, I can't put too much more to that. Anything you can picture about an idyllic childhood, that was mine. Grew up in Omaha, was here my entire life. Um, went to Central High School, which is where I got into journalism. And I guess if we're being honest, it's because I'm going to sweat and get uncomfortable being honest with myself about this now, but it's because the guy who I was in a crappy band with joined the journalism class because he liked the teacher or he needed some credits or something, and he talked me into it. So there we go. And yeah, he was just, he was an, he's the kind of teacher that everyone should have once in their lives. He loved the subject matter. He was able to inspire kids, and he got us to put <laughs> our hearts and blood, sweat, and tears into the a journalistic product. Um, I got the bug and I got it bad. I knew I wanted to go to the University of Missouri because it's a fantastic journalism school. Uh, walked in there before I even, God, I was such a precocious little kid. It's horrifying to think about. Before I even started at the university, at a pre-freshman in the two weeks before school starts, I walked into an organization called Investigative Reporters and Editors. Why did I walk in there? Because it was called Investigative Reporters and Editors. That's it. Full stop. Um, and I, I said, look, I'd like a job here. And they said, well, you can volunteer for a while. So I volunteered. That turned into a job. IRE had a back office called the National Institute for Computer Assisted Reporting, which I didn't know anything about that. It seemed nerdy. But those people were getting hired to do work by the Washington Post, by the New York Times, by USA Today, by all these national, you know, marquee publications. And I wanted to be part of that. So I walked in and I said, can I do this now? And they let me. Uh, and one thing led to another, and here we are. <laughs> How did your career develop from, from there? Um, poorly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I worked at IRE and, and NICAR the whole time I was an undergrad. I took a job in Springfield, Missouri, at a paper there in 2008, which was a wonderful time to getting into print. You know, we were about to have an economic collapse. The internet was still a fad in some people's eyes. Uh, I was the editor of a team of six, which was a weird place to put a 23-year-old. I apologize to those people every day, and my <laughs> I'm so sorry, all of you, that you had to put up with me. From there, I got a job in Phoenix, where I worked for a couple years, kind of doing the same thing, right? Learning at the feet of some people who knew what was going on with this stuff, though. Learned how to do real journalism work. Um, did some stuff that I'm still really proud of. And then I got a call from my hometown paper saying, hey, we'd like you to come here. I had a really great, I've worked there for six years, which is the longest I worked anywhere. Uh, and then I 
you know, I guess I got bored with it. I guess said I've been doing, you know, metropolitan news now for a decade. I'm too comfortable and I need to get out of it. And so I went to a place called MedPage Today, which was a totally different animal. Um, it was, it was national. Its audience was entirely doctors. You're welcome to read an article on MedPageToday.com, but you have to log in. And when you log in, they ask for your national practitioner identifier, which is a number only given to doctors. So if you read it, they don't care. If you're a doctor with an NPI and you're a nephrologist or whatever, then they care. Those are the only page views they care about because they can sell those ads for, for money. Uh, so I learned a whole lot about, you know, business things, uh, running an operation like this. Why the, the business case for investigative journalism? Why would we do a project that takes six months when someone can turn out six stories a day on topics that are just kind of news of the moment, that sort of thing. There's a real case for it. People read this stuff more. They read it longer. It is stuff that sticks in their memory. It's sticky, all these sorts of things. They'll sign up for a newsletter because they really liked it. There's a genuine case to be made that this work is valuable in a way that other work is not. Not to you know speak ill of it. It's, it has its role and I love it. But there is a real reason that investigative journalism has taken off over the past couple of years as, you know, more traditional journalism has uh, been hitting the skids. And then, yeah, two, uh, I guess two years ago now, a guy who I had admired for years asked if I wanted to come over to USA Today, and that's where I've been ever since. It's interesting that you've spanned some tectonic shifts, it seems, to an outsider <laughs> in the practice of journalism. Yeah. And you have journeyed with that transition. Yeah. I would imagine the internet has been extremely helpful and productive for a data reporter, but at the same time, it's it's wrought so many changes to the industry itself. And I don't know how you, you have encountered that transition being a part of it. For a long time, a main part of what I did was build, you know, turn data into something that was na native to the internet. So uh, a project from here in Omaha that we worked on was called Curbwise. And what we did is we took every single property in the entire in the entire county's uh, valuations and we put them on a map. So you can type in your address and you can see how much your house is allegedly worth or how much it's being taxed at. You can also see how much your neighbor's being taxed at and everybody on your block. You can see who's being ha valued higher or lower on a per square footage basis, all these sorts of things that are telling you a very personal story that matters to you a whole lot. It's not a traditional narrative, but that that's still storytelling, and that's kind of quintessential taking data and turning it into a, per, a personal story. That really speaks to me. That's something that I, even now I can feel myself, I lean forward, right? That idea gets me going still. The idea that you can take, you know, boring, dry, voluminous, hard to wrestle with information and make it very user-friendly and meaningful to people in a real way. I still see all sorts of applications for that. It's one thing, you know, if I, and we do. We did a story every year there about property taxes. Here's the person who saw their taxes go up the most, and here's why. And that's fine, and that's journalism, and that has a role, and that's traditional data journalism. But it's something very different to say, okay, so that's the story that matters to, you know, the, the royal we, but here's a story that matters to you. And that's a huge trick that we could not do pre-internet. That, that is a move that we have in our back pocket now, something we have at our disposal that we didn't, at, at, you know, even 10, 15 years ago. The hospital story that I was talking about earlier, being able to say for these 13 states in every hospital here is how they are treating their pregnant women. Same thing. It's one thing to say, here's the terrible hospital in New Orleans and just how bad they are. It's quite another thing to say, hey, 
half the entire United States population. You can find out what hospitals near you are going to treat you the best when you're at this, you know, incredibly critical period in your life. I get huge fulfillment from doing those sorts of stories, from letting people to see how often they use it too. Um, we did something last year looking at cops where we found police officers who were decertified in one state. Uh, you know, basically a state says, look, buddy, you cannot be a cop here anymore. You got to go. <laughs> you can't, you, we're just, we're just going to pretend that you were never here. They put your name on a list. You're not allowed to be an officer in that state anymore. We got those lists for the most of the country, if not the entire country, and we published them. And what we found, we, we obviously did a story that said, here's a guy who was decertified and he became a police chief in another state and he was a, you know, he, he was an animal and he left and the city's high and dry as a result and they probably should have known. And we do that story and that's one thing. But we could also publish this list of all the police across the nation who are in a similar boat. And we can see the numbers on that. We can see the millions of people who click and read those, who search for police officer names, uh, officers that they've been in uh, incidents with, or maybe they're loved ones, or maybe they're people who went, I don't know exactly what their motivation is, but they're going there and they're saying, hey, I have reason to believe so-and-so is on this list. Let's see if they're there or not. And like I said, those numbers just reinforce this is hitting a spot. This is something that resonates with people in a way that a traditional story sometimes can and sometimes can't. It does some, It's a different kind of third leg of the stool almost um, for what we're doing. And I, I think the opportunities for that are endless and we're barely scratching the surface. Fascinating too that that I think unearths another tension, which is the balance between the personal and the customizable, and the national and not generic but broadly applicable. Yeah. You know, at the same time, we're seeing the decline in community media in favor of isolated channels or sources and um, a, a national perspective in some ways. And again, I'm wondering about that sort of tension, this drive for the personal, but yet the decline in kind of local reporting, yeah. but your ability to be able to make it deeply personal and local. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity. You know, you were talking about the, the pressures in 
the print journalism uh, world earlier, and and mostly those have been at the major Metro Daily, you know, like the World Herald, like the Cincinnati Inquirer, like the, all of these like major city newspapers are really they've been pinched over the past couple decades. Um, but I I think that they more than anyone has the ability to really make hay out of that sort of making personal move, and we've seen this, and and that's promising to me. At the national level, you know, I do think we've seen, you know, the Washington Post, we've seen the New York Times, we've seen the Wall Street Journal kind of had a resurgence over the past couple of years as they've gotten online subscribers and they've invested more into reporting. And basically they've been able to turn from having advertisers fund things based on how many eyeballs the newspaper has to subscribers saying, this is a meaningful part of my day. Uh, the flip side of that is I do, I think we're fooling ourselves if we don't admit that there's some sort of, you know, political partisan part of that. You know, if I say someone subscribes to the New York Times, you can make some assumptions about their political leanings right off the bat. Same thing goes for Breitbart, same thing goes for the Wall Street Journal. That's not a way to make a good society. If we want to think at a high level about what we're doing here as Americans, that might be great for the business that I'm in and bless it. Let's do it. I'm all for that. I don't want anyone to lose their jobs. But we need to think about how we can shape the place that we actually want to be, the place that we can give our kids uh, that we want them to be if we're not living all underground in tunnels, you know, away from the sun. <laughs> well, that's a happy scene. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> it's been invigorating to hear about some of the potency of the work you do, the ability to source data, the tenacity with which you go after it, and the honesty with yourself and therefore the trust I think you build with your readers in how you ask questions of that data and Thank see you. what you can unearth and, and therefore share in, in a meaningful way. I'm wondering if there are, have been any particular outcomes of stories that you've done, some, some public repercussions from the stories you've been sharing. I mean, yeah. Uh, almost every story we do has some outcome, whether it be a law gets made or a, a law gets changed or people get released from prison or people get put in prison or people get fired or um, those sorts of things. I've been more interested lately in systemic change. It's, it, you know, everyone in my business, we want to be able to say a law got changed or something like that. And that is one level of success and that works and it has its role in those sorts of things. But I do, I think there's a, you know, laws are kind of surface level and laws, as much as they're there and they're law of the land, they're not necessarily fixing problems. I really want to give people tools to fix problems or if not fix them ourselves. Um, really, that's one way I, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm trying to evolve a couple things or question a couple things about how I approach my work. And that's one specifically where I'm trying to think about other ways to measure what success looks like. What do you think it is that makes you a good journalist? Well, I don't know if I am a good journalist. Um, <laughs> let's, assume, let's assume that I'm accurate in asserting that you are a good journalist. Um, I think trying to get to the truth and not taking excuses why I can't get there, uh, I think that's a good one. I think a steadfast belief that information belongs to us as a, as a people. When I make a request to a government entity of some sort and they tell me I can't have this because X, Y, Z, or uh, we had one in... Um, Tennessee, where we were working on a story about uh, social security disability, 
and they told us, sure, we can get you this information that will allow you to see how long doctors spend with patients before deciding that they do or do not get disability payments, which is this huge life-changing thing for those people, right? And we have reason to believe that doctors were spending maybe no time with them or five minutes with their paperwork before saying, no, you don't qualify. We put in a request for data that would have allowed us to you know, sort that out one way or another. And they quoted us some $1 million plus bill. Yeah, we'll tell you, pay us a million dollars. Well, we don't have a million dollars, so we can't find out. We can't do that story. But I'll tell you what, we're going to write a story telling everyone that you wanted us to pay this much before you would tell us this basic stuff about how government works. So the idea that information is ours and we deserve to know that. And if this is happening, we have the right to know uh, and then kind of get persnickety about things when people say no or give us an exorbitant bill like that, calling them on it. Um, if I am a good journalist, and that is a stretch again, I would say that that's the thing that I do best. What do you think would surprise people to know about about the craft of the work you do? I ask that because I think there is so much misunderstanding generally about the work that many of us do that isn't the work that we personally do. And I also think that maybe the... Uh, Cultural presentations of journalists in action tend to try to tell a you know a dramatic perspective, yeah. Or else we're living at a time, as we talked earlier, when the craft is being demonized uh, <laughs> in in some way. So, uh, is there anything profound or prosaic about the work you do that might just be surprising to people? Yeah, I think this just occurred to me while you were. I've never thought about this before, but I think a lot of people would be just shocked. I think I'm shocked sometimes at how much work. I do that doesn't go anywhere. We are not shy about saying we're going to spend four weeks seeing that if this is a thing or not. And if it's not, we're not going to write a story. I think a lot of people, when they envision what journalists are up to, we're, we're trying to put out as many stories as possible so people can click with the sexiest headline as possible, right? I can't speak for every journalist. I would never pretend to do that. And yes, there are journalists who specifically are doing exactly that. Um, but with what I do, it is far more important that if we're going, if we take a swing, we get a hit. And if we get a hit, we aren't screwing it up. It has to be fair and it has to be accurate. And if it's not fair and accurate, then we've screwed up and it wasn't worth it. We threw out, I probably spend, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it in case a boss listens to this or something, but probably half my time is spent working on tips that don't pan out. It, it's working on proving things out that maybe aren't going to be there. And when, we find nothing. We have nothing to show for it. There's not a story telling people what we didn't find. We're not out there just looking for the clicks. We are genuinely trying to get to the truth and something interesting. And if it turns out that it's not true or not interesting, there's no story. grateful for the work that you do. I'm grateful for the work that I get to see and I'm Thank grateful you. for the tenacity with which you pursue work that, that doesn't make it. And I'm grateful to you coming on the show, Matt. So thank you for being well, here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. I can't believe it's been over already. 
Oh, yeah. Good work. Thank yeah. you. Well yep. played. That part you you nailed. I appreciate that. Thank you. you. Know, game recognized game. That was. <laughs> <laughs>